Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author and director of the Centre. And one of the things we really love doing at the Centre is meeting new to us authors who are writing in the area of fantasy. And today I am joined by Lily Inkwood, who has a novel called uh, The Kingdom is a Golden Cage, which is coming out with HarperCollins in the summer. So good morning to Lily. Lily, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are to be found. Hi, Julia, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to be here and talk to you about the first book in my upcoming fantasy series. Um, I have been writing for a few years. Um, I've started by writing historical fiction. I've always been fascinated by history. I read a lot of um, history, even when I was a student. Um, And um, I just loved reading that and politics and myths. And I think I needed quite a few years before realizing that my favorite books, favorite movies, favorite series were fantasy. Um, and before I try to make a foray into the genre. So this is uh, The Kingdom is a Golden Cage. And as you said, it's coming out this year. And I'm very, very excited for the readers to meet my characters. And this crazy world inspired a bit by medieval Europe, but with very, very bonkers plot twists. I hope you'll agree with me. Yes. Now, Lily is uh also a full-time mum, uh, as many of us are who, who take to writing. And so if you hear a few happy noises uh, off, there are a few children in the household. Um, so Lily, where are you based? Where Where's your home? Uh, I live in Germany, but um, I am an immigrant. So actually English is a foreign language to me. I write in English. I started writing English when I took that up a few years ago. Uh, but if you think that my accent is a bit funny, well, no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just actually reeling with astonishment that actually you're writing in English and there's been no mm-hmm. translator in between us and this because you would not know everybody. I've read the book and there's actually no feeling of it having been translated or you're brilliant. Your English is brilliant. Oh well, it Thank just you. puts me to shame. I could, I could not do that. I could not do that. So before we talk um, about the process of your writing, uh, can we have a little tiny plot summary? You know, what's your, what are you putting on the back of your book so people can locate it as a as a read? So um, 
Celine is a princess who is being pressed by her father to marry, but she didn't want to do that for years and years since her lover Hugo simply vanished off the face of the earth when he tried to claim his birthright, the Duchy of Langley. Uh, the problem is when Hugo comes back five years later, he comes back in the shape of a cat. Well, Hugo has always been a shapeshifter. The problem is he cannot switch back to his own shape, um, the one of a human. But he has a plan how he can enact that, destroy the spells that are binding him, and get a grip on the duchy, which, which he thinks is his, at least. So, yeah, um, within that, we, we can see there are fairy tale elements. But I, what, I first want to talk to you about the use of real history, because what that summary doesn't give um, a sense of, and it can't because it's a summary, is that this is actually, it feels as though it's part of real politics. Um, and you said it was based on the politics of medieval Europe. How do you go about getting ideas from real history? Are you, you know, trained as a historian or are you just a reader of historical works? How do you go about it? Oh, um, as a high schooler and as a student, I've read tons of history from um, ancient history, Rome, Greece, uh, medieval history, historical books. And I've been very passionate about it. I actually think I should have studied that probably, but it wasn't considered as a hmm, career choice uh, by my parents that could uh, earn me money in the long term. Uh, remember, I come from Eastern Europe and it's, I think it's really difficult there to make a living as a historian, as a writer. So I went on to study something else completely. But the thing is, every time I start writing, Everything I've ever read sort of seeps into what I'm writing. So I always have a very loose plan of what I'm about to write. For instance, I had a few plot twists in mind when I started writing The Kingdom is a Golden Cage. And uh, I was at a point last year when I wanted something fun and escapist. And I couldn't find it. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to write it. I'm going to live in this world. I, I will live it what I'm about to write. And as the plot unfolded, as I put that into page, everything I've ever read, I think, stepped into that. And then, of course, I've started doing uh, research when I thought, okay, I could make this a bit more realistic. I've read a lot about uh, town and city in the medieval ages, about um, the Middle Ages also in Germany, uh, about the emperor, Friedrich Barbarossa, maybe... Um, Okay, this is an old polar, I can tell you about this. So you may notice the metaphor of the falcon. Uh, did you know that Barbarossa was a very passionate falconer and he actually wrote the manual in the Middle Ages about uh, falconing? So that's exactly a really good example of how something about a real person um, and a real sort of thread in history can then be wonderfully productive um, for, for fantasy. I think, is it... Uh, Margaret Atwood, who, who says she never writes anything that's not happened somewhere, you know, so mm -hmm. it, there there is this this reliance that we all have as fantasy writers on real real things. So moving away from medieval Europe with its multitude of little nations and um, rivalries and armies and all the rest of it, um, and moving over, and which of course we're familiar. with, Within used differently in things like Game of Thrones. Moving over to your 
take, which is to meld this with a fairy tale. The first fairy tale I noticed as I was reading it was Puss in Boots, because it starts with um, one of the ways that Puss in Boots persuades the passing king to take um, his master with him is to leave him naked by the side of the road saying his clothes been stolen. Uh, and that's more or less a version of that more or less happens, doesn't it, with Philippe? Yes, precisely. Um, Puss in Boots was a very, thank you for pointing that out, of course. Puss in Boots was um, a very important source of inspiration for The Kingdom is a Golden Cage um, because um, I love reading fairy tale retellings. And I always wondered with Puss in Boots, uh, the folk tale, um, you see this plot develop where the puss and his master trick the king and the princess into a thief, um, into a castle, so to say, and into the princess's hands. And I always wondered, how did the princess feel about that? We never hear in the story how the princess felt about being tricked into marriage uh, with a man whom she actually doesn't know. So basically, that's the kingdom is a golden cage. It's Puss in Boots so from the, seen from the perspective of the princess. How would she feel about it, about being tricked into it? And how would it be if the princess tried to do some tricking herself? So in addition to Puss in Boots, were there any other of the sort of great well-known fairy tales that, that you were using? More like tropes, I suppose, rather than fairy tale whole plots. Um, I think a uh, big theme in fairy tales and myths is uh, shape shifting. I think you can find it uh, across all Europe in one shape of the, or the other. Um including in the North, North, Nordic mythology, in Scandinavian mythology, Loki is in the end a shapeshifter, maybe the most famous shapeshifter uh, of them all. Even Freya has a falcon skin, which he uses to shapeshift into a falcon and visit the underworld. So I think um, people have always been fascinating, fascinated by shapeshifting and how would it be to assume uh, the skin of different animals. And I also find it particularly interesting how shapeshifting is used as a trope in fairy tales uh, across all Europe. And I mean also Eastern European um, fairy tales. I've grown up in Eastern Europe. I've mentioned that. And of course, I've grown up with those fairy tales. So the heroes there often shapeshift to trick uh, the villain um, into something. And I think that's basically what Loki also does uh, mm. when shape-shifting. He gets into a lot of trouble um, and then he has to solve the situation somehow in the advantage uh, of the gods. So I was, I think, um, I wasn't thinking consciously about that when I wrote The Kingdom is a Golden Cage, but I think that stepped into the structure. So while you're using the sort of fairy tale structure of you know, a kingdom with a king, um, you know, animals like a shape-changing cat and things like that. Actually, I really got into the book when I realised that what you were doing underneath all of those other layers is you were writing a spy thriller because that's the kind of plot it is. It has lots of twists, lots of people who have, there are pairs of people with agendas who are, trying to um, knock each other out and undermine each other. It's like one great big game of that board game diplomacy where different people are competing for the kingdom. 
Um, were you conscious that you were doing that? Have you got like spy thriller writers that you admire that you were thinking of emulating? Or is it something you just came upon by almost by exploration and mistake? Um, I do read thrillers. Um, I think I read about everything from literary to um, thrillers and fantasy, historical romance, but I wasn't thinking consciously about it. Um, I was just so into the story and I thought, okay, how can I make this even more surprising to the reader? And what would this character do now? And just by laying out the situation with the different warring parties, you get these situations of conflict that maybe I hadn't consciously planned, um, but just stepped into the page, just poured out uh, into the page. And I think what I should mention is that I'm a huge fan of Game of Thrones. And I think what I admired most um, in the Song of Ice and Fire series was exactly the use of history. I mean, you can completely see with George R. R. Martin how he uses um, the sources of European history and Asian history into creating these different uh, folks and these warring parties. Um, and I, I didn't set off consciously trying to emulate that, but I think that's what appeals to me um, as a reader also. So it would make sense that I would try maybe to write something like that. Yeah, so if... Um... If you're out there thinking, oh, I don't want to read a fairy tale. Actually, you're not really reading a fairy tale. You're reading a spy thriller that has a fairy tale world <laughs> setting, um, which I think was was a really fun take on the retelling of a fairy tale. Another thing I noticed as I was reading it that you have a repeated um, trope, or no, not trope, a repeated structural point where you say you change point of view and you say, here's my story. This is how it happened. So sometimes they're flashback and, and sometimes they are um, descriptions of what's in the mind of an, an author. You know, uh, I would say the main character was Celine, who's the, the princess in the story, but there are other main characters, um, including Magali, who's, I suppose she, I suppose you'd say she's in the wicked stepmother role if there is such a thing. <laughs> you know, she she sort of you're not quite sure if she's good or if she's bad or or what she is. Um which and and as a shape changer that stands to reason. But we get quite a few moments where we switch to her point of view. Um what were you trying to achieve with that? Uh I mean I know what what the effect on the reader is, but what was your aim as you set out with that structural idea? Thank you so much for this question. I've been raring to answer it because I did have a plan. Um, I think history is awfully subjective. And even the way we remember things that might have happened to us even 10 or 15 years ago, that's always distorted. And if you sometimes ask the same, two different persons about the same event, they might recount different versions of the same event. Um, or from their perspective, the event played out differently. Um, and I think you can see that a lot in the way legends are, are built around certain personalities, even nowadays through social media. Um, I think that's also an element of gossip because some events may be changed into something completely different when you try to see the best or the worst in a person. Uh, and I think what I've been most consciously doing that was when I told the story of how the Duchy of Langley was created and the people um, at its heart, the, who two generations before the events in the kingdom is a golden cage, 
um, have actually set up the duchy. So you hear different stories about the first duke um, and the duchess, and you don't know which to believe. But I think that's also very valid for the ways legends were born. Um, I think I've read somewhere quite a while ago that many of the god and goddess figures um, in ancient mythology were born from real people, real rulers who grew into legends. So I think that's what I'm trying to show in this fantasy world, how real people grew into those legends. And I hope we'll have the opportunity later in the series to go back from the stories that have been woven around these personalities back to the real people and see what happened there, what really happened there, what changed the course of the history in this kingdom. So, um, and I think what, one of the things about doing that is, of course, you you're, you end up with split sympathies. So you may think, oh, I'm on, you know, team Celine or team Philippe or whatever it is. Um, but then you'll see Magali looking at Celine thinking, oh, that annoying princess, you know, why doesn't she do what I tell her? So you get, um, you don't settle as firmly as you might otherwise do as a supporter of one particular version of this this history. Um, so I want to also, there's two big themes in the novel, which we haven't touched on or only briefly touched on. One is shape changing and the other is the issue of freedom. So let's take shape changing first. You mentioned that, uh, Loki does this. I mean, it's all over Greek myths, isn't it? With Daphne trans transforming into a bush and all that, all that stuff. Um, in your magic of shape changing in your world when somebody changes into a shape like an animal or another person is it purely a skin that they put on so that when they are being a lion that they are letting out the ferocity that's theirs or do they actually sort of become that creature so, i mean there's a difference there i think yeah. they're always themselves but with a different skin um, so in order to answer that question, I'd have to tell you a bit about the rules of this world, which is that um, there are gifts um, that the mages exhibit in the Red Kingdom, and there are spells, but spells are forbidden. Um, they are um, arcane knowledge only known to very few people, uh, which is mostly the doyen of the magic school, the Golden Pavilion. So when a shapeshifter uses their gift to change into a creature, then they would still be themselves, uh, thinking and acting as themselves. But when they have changed into a shape and they are bound by spells to keep that shape unable to change back into their own human form, then do the changes at a mental level come in and then they began feeling, acting, thinking more like the animal they have changed themselves into before being bound into that shape. So, yeah. so it's a process of transformation of by having the physical experience of being something else. So um, a not mentioning any names, but say a character is transformed into a mouse. They aren't a mouse to start with, but the longer they're a mouse, the more mouse-like they would yes. become. Yeah. Precisely. So there's a danger of trapping somebody in a shape like that. Definitely. Yeah. So that goes into um, the second theme, which is, oh, and I should just say it's very important for anyone who's writing a fantasy to work out the rules of your magic 
it's like one of the first things you can you should think about is there magic and what what are the rules is it infinite magic limited magic yeah um anyway so going to the theme about um caging and uncaging almost everybody in your book seems to want to cage people either literally cage them or um put them in a position that traps them so caged by the nature of their role in life and there's one person who sort of um moves against that who doesn't want to be caged i don't think it's a plot spoiler to say that because philippe is always like this from the beginning um he's mm-hmm. more living outside that but i would say there's evidence that even even he ends up i mean there are some things which i think where everybody ends up going along with this idea that everyone has to be trapped and caged so is this how you see um that world based on the sort of medieval kingdom world that actually nobody can really be free and who would be free in in that world um yes i do think in the medieval times there were a huge amount of rules um by which people lived and very little social mobility from a certain level so if someone was born a farmer they would most likely die a farmer they just didn't have the possibility to move upwards into the world um and i think that was even more caging as you've said than nowadays and i think it was particularly true for women um there were very few that could move outside of the rules that were prescribed to them and i think and what i would like the reader to do when reading the kingdom is a golden cage is thinking that Celine and Magali in their mentality they are products of that age i wish they would look at these characters not through the eyes of someone of a woman who lives nowadays who has <clears throat> access to education um who can who is allowed to work um i think i would like Celine and Magali to be looked at as products of that society because society and how we grow up shapes the way we see the world and i think we can still see that in Celine because she does not want power for herself um she isn't the realm breaker that mm-hmm. would upturn the laws because it is hard to break out of a certain mindset that we grow up with and even magali's mindset we have to remember she is in her 40s now she's much more experienced she has lived through very difficult times and that is also a product of her experience but we are often set up to live by the rules we grow up with and i i really hope that the reader feels that when it comes to celine and how she sees the world and her own goals Yes and I think that Celine is definitely the one who for me goes on the biggest journey uh, up to maturity about working out well, if I get this power what do I do with it um mm-hmm. is really the the question that she's grappling all the way along um okay so I hope that we've done justice to your book I notice that you have mentioned at the end that you're hoping to carry on and uh, expand this world into a trilogy will you be staying with the same characters or uh have, have you planned it or is it just an idea in your head at the moment where are you on that um, that, that particular I journey have, i have written two and a half books already so the okay. is just the first one and 
Um, I, I think that's very helpful because I, I wrote my first quartet, which is for children, um, the Companions Quartet. I, I wrote that all before the first one was published, which meant I was able to go back and put in the first one things that I only thought of when I was writing the last one. So it looks as though it, you know, it ties it all together nicely. So it's not no bad thing to have it all in the bottom drawer. It's it's the best because it it helped me come to grips with the world building. And isn't it so cool when you have written much of the books that are supposed to come after the first one, and then you can just layer it all in the first one. And I think mm. the reader can really see that and drop some maybe tongue-in-cheek hints to something that mm. would... Uh, come out later which maybe don't make much sense now like um the mention of mermaid's lake when um, celine travels with her father towards langley you might want to think about that or when celine um, is in the library and she comes across a book about her grandparents uh, practically and someone has written on the edge of ha so oh, yeah yeah you can put these little hints and be a little smug about it and think you'll see later what I mean. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> I totally what, that's love that feeling. Yeah. It's wonderful. That's great fun. It's part of the fun of writing, isn't it? So we always have a, a section uh, in the podcast where we say, where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something? Um, and because I've been describing your book, Lily, as um, like a fairy tale spy thriller, I thought it'd be fun to ask where in all the fantasy world is the best place to set a spy thriller outside obviously our own worlds if you were going to you know have another go at this but in a completely different zone where where would you go um i think the format works uh, very well with a game of thrones i I think that doesn't come as a surprise, a huge surprise. No, no, conversation. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, that's the perfect setting of uh, backstabbing and uh, spies and uh, people minding their own business um, when claiming to do something else entirely. And I think it's also written as a spy thriller from certain um, points of view. So I've said I'm a huge fan um, of George R.R. R. Martin and what he's created. Um, there, of course, I've been reading much more romanticy lately. Interesting trivia. I did not know that such a thing as romanticy exists before I'd actually written The Kingdom is a Golden Cage. Um, I was always fascinated by fantasy and I thought, yeah, I'd be terrible at writing fantasy because it would be too soft and uh, too inclining towards romance because that's what I like to read. Uh, and it was like the biggest regret of my life. Why can't I write battles better or um, mm. grittier fantasy? And then I wrote this book because the impulse to do it was just too strong. I sent it to my editor and while I was waiting for Charlotte to see what she says about it, um, I came across Sarah J. Mass and Stephanie Garber and Jennifer Armantrout. And it was a huge revelation. It was like, I have found my tribe. These are my people. These people <laughs> write what I love to read. Um, yeah, so it's been a journey for me too as a reader also. Yeah. So that's, that gives away, we share uh, the same editor, uh, Charlotte uh, at HarperCollins who have potentially the coolest building. Have you visited them ever? Um, try and try and put a, go, go to London cause they're right by um, the river, right by London bridge. And from their offices, you can see all my favorite parts of London, the tower of London, the old city, the globe. It's just fantastic. Um, they're right by the shard that the, 
tallest building in London. Um, and I, I, in answer to my own question, uh, I think I would quite like to have a go at writing a spy thriller in the world of Indiana Jones, because if you remember, Indiana Jones has magic, some yep. of those. And it, it sometimes verges in a spy thriller, but I'd just love to write a sort of just before the war, Second World War, somewhere exotic um, spy thriller about some key artefact. That'd be great fun. Um, not something I've ever done, but that's what I would like to do. And, and you get a bit of fedora wearing and, you know, bullwhip cracking um, mm -hmm. action and chases across deserts. Yeah, no, no, that would be a good place for a spy thriller. Um Okay, and what about a fantasy tip? Have you got a tip either of something you might want to recommend to read or um, a place that you, something you've watched or a place you go for inspiration to share with people listening? Well, since we touched upon that uh, a few minutes ago, I think that uh, the best tip would be even if you don't know what's going to happen to the, your first fantasy book. Even if you're unsure if your publisher will, if your editor will want to publish that or not, if the impulse is there, keep writing. Because the more you write in that world, the more you write yourself into that world, and it would make the first book uh, better, it would make the world building better. Um, and even by going farther along the series with the plot, then you can see where your characters need to be in the first one. Or maybe you have a bit a few secondary characters that are loose ends and then you definitely see a purpose for them while you have written another book or another two books in that series. I think that helps enormously um, with world building and everything. So for instance, when I first wrote The Kingdom is a Golden Cage, I had no idea who Hugo's mother is. She was Hugo's mother. Now I definitely know after the second book who... <laughs> Hugo's mother is, and you are going to love this. She is so wicked. So, <laughs> so you have to write to discover your own plot in that case. Um, so in, I think my tip, yeah. yeah, my tip would be for people writing their fantasy novel out there is rather than sitting down and thinking, I am writing a fantasy novel, actually go dig down a bit further and say, am I writing a fantasy detective story, a fantasy war epic, mm -hmm. a fantasy love story, a, you know, find what other genre you're actually writing in because... Um, you'll probably find a lot of your plot moves, your characters, your twists from understanding what other genre you're working in rather than, oh, it's some vague fantasy quest type thing. Um, dig down a bit further and you'll find it a much more enriching experience. So, Lily, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and wish you all the best with the publication of your book. I look forward to seeing it uh, on Kindle, presumably, first and then on the shelves or however it's coming out these days. Um, so the book we've been talking about is by Lily Inkwood, The Kingdom is a Golden Cage. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Julia, for having me. This has been a blast and uh, thank you for your questions. They were absolutely amazing and I really feel that you understood my book um, and this has been a wonderful experience. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.
Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.